So how many of you have heard of Martin Luther? <laughs> I, I, you, you can see his picture up there. But before today, how many of you have heard of Martin Luther? I would, yeah, pretty much everybody. Sure, everybody knows pretty much who Martin Luther is and what he did. But because he is such an important figure, I don't want to just assume that, he, uh, that you know everything you need to know about him. His life and work was tremendously important to the formation of the church in the West. So for that reason, we're going to spend actually two sessions on Martin Luther because there's just so much to unpack. Now, the picture you see up on the screen is by an artist named Lucas Cranach the Elder. And he was a uh, painter of portraits primarily, uh, working in Northern Europe during uh, this period of the Renaissance and Reformation. And he painted actually many portraits of famous people during this period. One of the great things about studying a period in which portraits were painted, portraits were becoming a form of art that was increasingly popular. Um, we have, you know, pretty faithful representations. Uh, you can't hear. Is this better? Okay. Okay. So Lucas Cranach the Elder painted this portrait of Luther when Luther was about 46 years old. Martin Luther was a German professor of theology, a composer of, of hymns, a priest, a monk, a translator of the scriptures, and one of the most important figures in the Protestant Reformation. Born November 10th, 1483 in Eilben in Eastern Germany. At that time, it was part of the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, we're gonna be talking about the Holy Roman Empire and the emperor from time to time. Um, and the best way I can describe the Holy Roman Empire was to maybe we could think of it like the European Union of its day. <laughs> um, that's, it's a complicated thing, and I, you know, we don't have time to go into it. Uh, but just it was a federation of European nations. Luther's parents were Hans and Margaret Luther, and Hans was employed in copper mining, and Martin was the oldest child. And as the oldest child and being a son, there were a lot of hopes and expectations put upon him by his parents, um, as, you know, as many people did. So Hans was determined that Luther, Martin Luther would be educated, and he had dreams of Martin becoming a lawyer. And if Martin had become a lawyer and had obtained uh, favor from high political figures like princes and bishops in Eastern Germany, he probably would have been very prosperous and would have been able to take care of his parents and other family members in, in their old age. 
Martin received his preparatory education in what were known as Latin schools in Mansfield and Magdeburg. And again, this is in what is today uh, the eastern part of Germany. These schools educated students in what was known as the trivium, three subjects that were considered extremely important, grammar, rhetoric, and logic. In 1501, the 17-year-old Luther enrolled in the University of Erfurt. Luther later described this university as a beer house and a whorehouse. And if you know anything about Martin Luther, he was <laughs> very plain spoken. <laughs> he, he expressed his mind without reservation. Luther received his master's degree from Erfurt in 1505, and Luther began studying law, but soon dropped out. On July 2nd, 1505, while returning to university from a uh, trip to visit his family, he was on horseback riding through the countryside. A lightning bolt struck him or near him during a thunderstorm. Later telling his father that being terrified of death and divine judgment, he cried out, help, St. Anne, I will become a monk. He figured God spared his life, so he owed something to God. St. Anne was the mother of the Virgin Mary, and she was considered the patron saint of minors in Germany. And Martin came to view his cry for help that day as a vow that he could never break. So here we have a, a portrait of the younger Martin Luther, uh, and this is from about the time in which he entered the, uh, the monastery. Uh, he left the university at Erfurt, sold his books, and entered St. Augustine's Monastery in Erfurt on July 17, 1505. Now, just because he was not no longer formally enrolled in the university and had become a monk, there was still, in that day, a close connection between the universities and the monasteries. Uh, so, later, Luther would go back to being a teacher in universities. Luther dedicated himself to the Augustinian order, devoting himself to fasting, long hours in prayer, pilgrimages, and frequent confession. One confession session with his confessor, uh, a man by the name of Stoppitz, lasted six hours. He struggled deeply with the sense of his sin, both in terms of sinful acts and his his basic religious condition. He knew that he was both a sinner and sinful, a committer of sins. He was often in despair about the condition of his soul, and he struggled deeply with depression. Later scholars have, have basically assessed Luther as being very depressed during this period. When Luther was in the University of Erfurt, he had two teachers that had a great influence on his thinking. Bartholomaeus von Usingen and Jodocus Trutfetter instructed Luther in the philosophy of the ancient Greek thinker Aristotle. However, Luther hated Aristotle. <laughs> 
Um, and Aristotle, the, the teachings and the philosophy of Aristotle at that time for the, for the church in Europe was considered a bedrock of scholastic thinking. Many of the great pillars of the, uh, we would today call it the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, they would have just thought of themselves as being part of the church. Um, the scholars, monks, priests, and so forth who studied Aristotle uh, pretty much based much of their reasoning about God and theology on the philosophy of Aristotle, but Aristotle was an ancient pagan Greek scholar. Um, so you can see there, you know, this leaves open some possibility of problems. So these, uh, these particular professors taught Luther about the philosophies of William of Ockham and Gabriel Beale. And the popular methodology for learning at this time was something called scholasticism. And here you can see uh, more of a medieval picture of um, what would be typical in a university. And it almost looks like these people are sitting in church. Again, there was a very close connection between the universities and the church. So the professor is lecturing to a group of students who are probably, hopefully, diligently taking notes. And again, from this setting, uh, as you can see it, uh, it looks like they're in church. Now, the idea of scholasticism is that it places a strong emphasis on dialectical reasoning. And I apologize for the big, long words but it's the idea that you can extend your knowledge by inference. In other words, you can take what you know, and based on what you already know, you can make inferences, or you can infer, or make, uh, you know, you can reason through a problem to figure out things that you don't know very much about. And you can also find a way to resolve contradictions. So in the classroom and in writing, it often takes the form of an explicit disputation. And the word disputation comes from dispute. And what's involved in a dispute? You have two sides who are arguing different points of view on a topic. And in a lot of ways, this process is similar to what students do today in a debate club in high school or college. So this approach to learning is really not all that um, unfamiliar to, to those of us today. How many of us have engaged in disputes with, hopefully they were friendly, with people we know discussing a topic, maybe you have one point of view, your friend has a different point of view. You discuss it, you present your points of view, and then you reason through to either saying, yes, one person's point of view is correct, or no, it's not, or possibly there's what's called a synthesis. In other words, you both come to an agreement that Maybe things aren't quite how you framed them when you began the argument. So in this disputation process, a topic was drawn from the tradition as, and is open in the form of a question. Opponents' responses are given, a counterproposal is argued, 
and opponents' arguments are rebutted. And in some ways, this is not all that different than what occurs in a court of law in a trial. In this way, it is thought that a student can gain knowledge and understanding through a process that essentially lies on man's reasoning abilities. In other words, we can know things, ideas, concepts are true by going through a disputation process and we can refine our knowledge and come to a better understanding of the world in which we live and philosophy and so on. So there were some important scholastic thinkers or schoolmen, they were called schoolmen, with whom Luther was familiar. And these included William of Ockham, who was, in his own way, something of a reformer in scholastic thinking. The picture uh, up on the screen is from a stained glass window in an English church. William of Ockham was an English Franciscan friar or monk. He was a scholastic philosopher and theologian who lived almost, say, 200 years before Luther. William of Ockham championed faith since only faith gives us access to theological truths. The ways of God are not open to reason, for God has freely chosen to create a world and establish a way of salvation within it, apart from any necessary laws that human logic or rationality can uncover. So Occam, William of Ockham was taking a very different perspective. We can't reason our way to, to the knowledge of God. We can't just debate and uh, propose ideas out of our own reasoning as a way to understanding God. Basically, God has revealed himself to man. That's how we can know God. For Luther, most of what he learned as a student and his vocation as a monk did not help him with his doubts and struggles with faith. Luther was wrestling with the philosophy of epistemology. Big long word, it means the study of how do we know that we know, or how do we know that what we know is true. Most importantly for Luther, he wanted to know how he could be saved and how he could be sure that he was. Luther was in fear for his soul. The church of his day taught extensively on sin, punishment for sins, and the last judgment, in which all humanity would be judged according to their works. There was no teaching on assurance of salvation. And you also have to think about the world that Luther lived in. Life in Europe at that time was greatly affected by lack of proper hygiene and sanitation, limited diets, wars, and constant sickness and death. The Black Death or Black Plague had wiped out a large percentage of the peoples in Europe, peaking in Europe from 1347 to 1351 but it was still active in Europe up until the 1700s. 
So, you know, we think of uh, the Black Death occurring almost 200, you know, really 200 years before Luther, but, you know, look at what's going on with coronavirus today. You know, here we are with all of our modern scientific methods, modern medicine, and yet many people are very worried about this epidemic of disease. In that day, you know, they had no remedies for this. If somebody contracted plague, they, they died, mostly. There were some exceptions, but if you got the plague, you died. It was pretty simple. Lifespans were short. Women frequently died in childbirth. Infant mortality was high. Satan and evil forces were often viewed as the source of many of these problems and afflictions. For many people, the means to combat these evils were what we would believe today as superstitions. The belief in praying to saints, praying for masses for the dead, going on pilgrimages, belief that doing good works and paying alms, or in other words, giving uh, money to help the poor, would gain merit towards salvation, praying for souls in purgatory, paying for indulgences. The salvific power or saving power of relics and religious artifacts. Luther had a firsthand look at the source of the church's teachings when Vicar General Johannes von Staupitz commissioned him to go to Rome. He was supposed to help reconcile two quarreling groups of Augustinian friars. While in Rome, Luther went to venerate the saint's relics. He climbed the Santa Scala, or Holy Steps, believed to be the stairs from Jerusalem that Jesus had climbed to be questioned by Pontius Pilate before his crucifixion. But Luther had doubts. Who knows if this is really true? Another Roman practice that Luther came to abhor was the sale of indulgences. An indulgence is a way to reduce the amount of punishment one has to undergo for sins. It may reduce the temporal punishment for sin, in other words, the punishment that you undergo here and now on earth for sin uh, after death in the state or process of purification called purgatory. The Roman church taught that all who die in God's grace and friendship but are still imperfectly purified, go to purgatory, a place of fire and punishment that purifies. And it was believed that it was necessary to go to, pur to purgatory to be purified before a believer could go to heaven. Indulgences were introduced to allow for the remission of the severe pe penances of the early church and granted at the intercession of Christians awaiting martyrdom or who were imprisoned for the faith. They draw on the treasury of merit accumulated by Christ's superabundantly meritorious sacrifice on the cross and the virtues and penances of the saints. So in other words, the idea was Christ has accumulated all this, 
you know, you can think of it as a plus and minus system. All these pluses, and through indulgences and other means, I can draw upon this storehouse of merit to ensure or help ensure my salvation. Now, in a system like this, the question becomes, how many plus marks on my account do I need to have so that I can get through purgatory quickly, so that I can get to heaven faster? No one really knows. So indulgences are granted for specific good works and prayers in proportion to the devotion which, with which those good works are performed or prayers recited. Okay, so again, it's a system of pluses and minuses. Have I been devout enough? Did I perform the penance assigned to me by the priest after I made confession? Did I do it with enough devotion? enough good intention, enough faith. It's a system of works, essentially. Oops. By the late Middle Ages, the abuse of indulgences, mainly through their sale, had become a serious problem, which the church recognized, but was unable to restrain effectively. It seems reasonable to think that a shortcut to accumulating merit by purchasing indulgences, along with the requirements of saying prayers and doing good works, would be a way for the church to raise a lot of money. Novel idea. Jan Hus, the Czech reformer active in the early 1400s, we've come across him before, he condemned the sale of indulgences. The scandalous conduct of the pardoners or sellers of indulgences became a problem throughout Europe. In 1517, Pope Leo X offered indulgences for those who gave alms to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And as we'll get into later, actually, Leo had borrowed money to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica and he had to pay it back. It was a loan. So how do you pay it back if you don't have enough money? Because the Pope had been spending money um, on wars and other things, and so selling indulgences obviously became a good way to raise money to pay back that loan. The aggressive marketing practices of Johann Tetzel or John Tetzel in promoting this cause provoked Martin Luther to write his 95 theses, condemning what he saw as the purchase and sale of salvation. In Thesis 28, Luther objected to a saying attributed to Tetzel. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. The 95 Thesis not only denounced such transactions as worldly, but denied the Pope's right to grant pardons on God's behalf in the first place. The only thing indulgences guaranteed, Luther said, was an increase in profit and greed, because the pardon of the church was in God's power alone. The 95 Theses were formally titled the disputation of Martin Luther on the power and efficacy of indulgences. 
and were included in a letter to Albrecht von Brandenburg, his bishop. And Brandenburg, by the way, was also in, heavily invested in the sale of indulgences. And here's a, uh, a woodcut or engraving from um, about this time, and it's showing someone selling indulgences, and the people are lining up, and the coins are rapidly being flung down. Luther said forgiveness was God's alone to grant. Those who claimed that indulgences absolved buyers from all punishments and granted them salvation were in error. Christians, he said, must not slacken in following Christ on account of such false assurances. And in fact, Luther was concerned that if it was really that easy to buy my way out of punishment for my sins, what do I need Christ for anyway? I mean, if you're a rich person, you know, it's easy. According to one account, Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, on October 31st, 1517. Luther originally wrote the thesis in Latin, and thanks to the prevalence of the printing press, that marvelous technological development, the work was circulated widely in Germany. In January 1518, friends of Luther translated the 95 Thesis from Latin into German. And by the spring of 1558, 10 years later, his theses had circulated widely throughout Europe. So again, thanks to the printing press, um, these ideas, these revolutionary, uh, potentially revolutionary ideas could spread quite rapidly. Luther's writings circulated widely, reaching France, England, and Italy as early as 1519. Students thronged to Wittenberg to hear Luther speak. He published a short commentary on Galatians and his work on the Psalms. This early part of Luther's career was one of his most creative and productive. Three of his best-known works were published in 1520 to the Christian nobility of the German nation, on the Babylonian captivity of the church, and on the freedom of a Christian. From 1510 to 1520, Luther lectured on the Psalms and on the books of Hebrews, Romans, and Galatians. As he studied these portions of the Bible, again, there's that pesky Bible study cropping up again, leading people to think outside the box. This is what Bible study can do for you. <laughs> so Luther studied these portions of the Bible, and he came to understand the use of terms such as penance and righteousness by the Catholic Church in new ways. He became convinced that the church was corrupt in its ways and had lost sight of what he saw as several of the central truths of Christianity. The most important for Luther was the doctrine of justification, God's act of declaring a sinner righteous by faith alone through God's grace. 
he began to teach that salvation or redemption is a gift of God's grace, attainable only through faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior. This one firm rock, which we call the doctrine of justification, he wrote, is the chief article of the whole Christian doctrine, which comprehends the understanding of all godliness. This radical new understanding was due in part to Luther's own internal struggles and in part to his study of the Bible, begun in 1512 when he was sent to the University of Wittenberg to obtain his doctorate degree. We probably today cannot fully appreciate how radical Luther's assertion was and its implications. If salvation is by faith alone, what is the church's role in salvation? What about baptism? What about good works? Do they play any role in helping a person become saved? Even the faithful sin. What should penance for sins be, and who administers that? If God truly saves people, do they still have to go to purgatory when they die? Luther came to understand justification as entirely the work of God. This teaching by Luther was clearly expressed in his 1525 publication, On the Bondage of the Will, which was written in response to On Free Will by Erasmus, who wrote that in 1524. If you remember from previous studies, Erasmus was a Dutch scholar and humanist and devout follower of the church and um, basically proposed that man has free will, unfettered or unchecked by anything, and Luther took a different position. Luther based his position on predestination on Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Against the teaching of his day that the righteous acts of believers are performed in cooperation with God, Luther wrote that Christians receive such righteousness entirely from outside of themselves. Righteousness not only comes from Christ, but actually is the righteousness of Christ imputed to Christians rather than infused into them through faith. Now, at this time throughout much of Europe, people were searching for a way to have a personal connection with God. All they had from the church was to go to mass, make pilgrimages, venerate relics, buy indulgences, pay alms, and do penance. A lot of good works. Now, the portrait you see here is Elector Frederick the Wise, an imposing fellow, certainly. Um, and he comes into the story um, about this time. Now, many people beside Luther were becoming openly anti-clerical, in other words, against the clerical hierarchy of the church. And this was in response to priestly scandals 
and the cynical mixing of religion, politics, and money. Now, um, if you can recall from some of the surveys that we did from some of the early English reformers, it was common throughout Europe for people who were high up in the secular world in terms of power and governmental authority, like princes, to buy church offices. So a prince could make him, essentially buy uh, the seat of a bishopric, in other words, become a bishop if he gave enough money to the church. So in those days, the idea of separation of church and state, which we're familiar with today, that wasn't present at this time in history in Europe. So there, there was a lot of mixing of religion, politics, and of course, money makes it all go around. Elector Frederick the Wise was prince over the lands in which Luther lived and worked, and he was aware of Luther and his new ideas. Now, he didn't necessarily come out in favor of Luther, but because Luther lived in the area that he governed, Frederick gave Luther protection because he was one of his subjects and felt that protecting my subjects and providing them with due process according to the laws of the land that I rule is very important. Now the picture, okay. The picture we have here is of Pope Leo X because of course eventually news of what Luther is teaching and the works that he is uh, writing, all of this is eventually gonna make its way to Rome and to the ears of the Pope. And that's a portrait of Pope Leo X. It was inevitable that Luther's writings printed and circulated widely throughout Europe and his teachings would bring him into conflict with the Pope and the church hierarchy. Pope Leo X, born into the prominent Italian de Medici family, was using proceeds from the sale of indulgences to pay off a loan from the German Führer banking family for the reconstruction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So he had borrowed money from these rich Germans who had a bank, and he had to repay that loan. Leo really failed to fully comprehend the importance of Luther's 95 Theses. So in February 1518, Leo directed the Vicar General of the Augustinians, in other words, the, the person who was in charge of the whole Augustinian uh, monaster, monasterial order, um, and Luther was still an Augustinian monk at this time, to impose silence on his monks. Be quiet. On May 24, 1518, Luther sent an explanation of his theses to the Pope. Now, during this time, a Dominican theologian named Sylvester Mazzolini drafted a heresy case against Luther. Finally, on August 7th, 1518, Luther was summoned to appear at Rome. Now, Frederick the Wise, the German ruler of the lands in which Luther lived and worked, 
Again, he protected Luther. He persuaded the Pope to have Luther examined at Augsburg, Germany by Cardinal Cajetan, the Pope's legate or personal representative. And Cajetan was um, very high up in the church uh, hierarchy and a very uh, uh, considered to be a top scholar in the whole church. Cajetan examined Luther in October 1518. And this, uh, this painting shows Cajetan and Luther uh, during that time meeting in the home of who else but the German Fucher bankers. Um, of course, very rich and probably had a beautiful home. And again, they were the ones who had loaned Leo X the money to build St. Peter's, and they were, in fact, you could say sort of, the cause for the selling of indulgences. Cajetan was directed by Rome neither to debate Luther nor make a final judgment on his theology, but rather simply to insist that he recant by saying, revoco, Latin for, I recant, or I go back on what I've said. Upon arrival, Luther followed the advice of his colleagues and prostrated himself before Cajetan, then rose to his knees to answer the cardinal's interrogation. Luther, however, refused to recant his positions and instead pressed Cajetan for clarity on where he was in error. Debate was inevitable. After all, this is what these people do best. <laughs> this is what they're trained to do. Cajetan was an excellent theologian and ecclesiastic of high standing. Um, he had published an extended commentary of Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica, which for those times, you can kind of think of it as the best systematic theology uh, that the medieval and Renaissance era church had. Cajetan not only was a, an incredible scholar and theologian, but he was also vicar general of the Dominican order, and he had actually delivered an address at the opening of a church council, Lateran V, in 1512. Cajetan was a committed Thomist. A Thomist was someone who followed Thomas Aquinas and um, agreed with the way Aquinas approached different subjects. He had a high view of papal authority, and so the clash with Luther was inevitable. The central point of contention between Cajetan and Luther was the authority of the papacy to issue indulgences. Cajetan repeatedly cited Aquinas and the papal bull Unigenitus de Filius. Um, a papal bull is basically a proclamation from the pope. And this particular proclamation, uh, the Latin title is translated the only begotten son of God. It was written by Pope Clement VI in 1343 in support of indulgences to validate his position. Luther 
rejected the authority of Aquinas and claimed the Pope had no authority to institute a dogma teaching justification through any means other than Christ. When Cajetan pressed him on the point, Luther responded that popes, councils, and theologians can all err, appealing to numerous medieval theologians and even canon law or church law in support of his argument. Cajetan told Luther that if he simply accepted the doctrine expressed in Unigenitus de Filius without qualification, he could walk away without any censure, any, any spot on his record. Now, ironically, Cajetan was himself the enemy of misuse and erroneous teachings about indulgences and had in the past said that even if theologians and preachers teach wrongly about these things, no faith need to be given to them. Cajetan himself had said, preachers speak in the name of the church only so long as they proclaim the doctrine of Christ and his church. But if, for purposes of their own, they teach that about which they know nothing and which is only their own imagination, they must not be accepted as mouthpieces of the church. No one must be surprised if such as these fall into error. Cajetan's point was that Tetzel's misuse of indulgences was no reason for Luther to attack the church and reject its right doctrine. The contest between Cajetan and Luther lasted three days from October 12th through the 14th, 1518. Finally, Cajetan dismissed Luther with the demand to recount, recant or face the consequences, which probably meant imprisonment and deportation to Rome. After the heated final session, Cajetan implored both Johannes von Staupitz, Luther's Augustinian superiors, superior, and Wenceslaus Link, his Saxon legal counsel, to get Luther to recant, but they were unsuccessful. At this point, Staupitz absolved Luther of his vow of obedience to the Augustinian order, and thus freed himself from responsibility for Luther's teaching. In other words, at this point, Staupitz, who had been Luther's confessor and counselor for many years, simply said, you are released from your vow to the Augustinian order. So at this point, he is no longer an Augustinian friar. Realizing the gravity of the situation, Staupitz left the young monk with the words, you should bear in mind, brother, that you began this in the name of Jesus Christ. With help from the Carmelite monk, Christoph Langenmantel, Luther slipped out of Augsburg at night, unbeknownst to Cajetan. Most likely, if he had not, he would have been taken to Rome. And we're going to end here. This is essentially half the story as I'm telling it. Next time, we're going to pick up from this point. I